We are wrapping up our walk through 2 Thessalonians today, and I, I'll confess, one of the reasons why I wanted to preach through this book was because of this chapter. I thought this would be a great Father's Day sermon. <laughs> and as I got into the passage, I'm like, this actually isn't saying what I thought it was saying. So I had kind of one Father's Day sermon in mind on Monday morning, and the Father's Day sermon that you're hearing today has been more shaped by my study of the text and is in a different direction than I thought it would be, but rightly so. This is a reminder to us that we are reading someone else's mail, right? This letter that Paul has written to the church in Thessalonica in Greece, they were going through some stuff. There are specific situations that he is speaking to. And it's important for us to try to grasp as much as we can what is it he's actually speaking to before we make the jump and say, this is what Paul is saying to us. This is what the Spirit is saying to us through Paul. And I think this is, this is important for us to remember because so quickly we often will read a passage of Scripture and our first question is, what is God saying to me right now? Before we jump to, or before we ask the question of what is being said to the original people who would have received it, how would they understand what is being said, and then what from that can we say, all right, this is what we need to start applying to our lives. So, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, sermon number 2. starts out with this section, as Tom read, where he's asking for prayer. And I think this is interesting because throughout this prayer, we've seen, throughout this letter, sorry, we've seen Paul praying for the Thessalonians several times. In the first chapter, he prayed for them that God would help persevere them, right? That God would strengthen them in the midst of trial. And after the, the, the second chapter, where he's talking about the whole like end times thing and everyone's up in arms about it, he prayed that God would help them to stand firm in their faith. Transitioning to chapter 3, he's now asking them to pray for him. Praying that as they uh, are, are going about the ministry that they're doing, he says, pray that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. His whole theme throughout this has been, it's been amazing to see God at work in you. How the gospel has taken root. We would love to see that everywhere. And so part of what he's asking them is to pray for others to be able to receive and the gospel to take root in their lives the way it has in their own life. He also says, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. Then switches it to them but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. This is, think of, of the Lord's Prayer, if you grew up saying that in church. Deliver us from evil, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's asking them to pray God's protection for them as they continue their work of spreading the gospel. So he's not in Thessalonica anymore. He's traveling around with his, his troop continuing to start churches, continuing to introduce people to Jesus, and he's longing for the same stuff that took place in the gospel being received and taking root in the Thessalonians to take place elsewhere. 
It says, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that, that what you are doing and we, that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Now, that, this is like a, a weird kind of standalone section. Then he gets into the real heart of the matter in this chapter. And Tom read it, but we're going to work through it uh, together because there's a lot in here. And there is a lot that stands out to us, I'm sure, as we're reading it, that hits us and sounds weird to us. So we're going to work through it this morning. Starting in verse 6, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone else's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And so we hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter and do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. What is going on in Thessalonica? This is like the words that Paul is, is using. Like, this is severe language. And, and for us to really understand what's going on, we need, to, we need to dive into a bit more context. Because here's what I found. In my first reading of it, I thought it was saying one thing. But as I've dug into it deeper throughout the week, I'm learning that there's more to it than what I've read on the surface. So we're going to ask the question, what's going on and why is this such a big deal that Paul would say things like, don't associate with these people. Let's start with the question of, what does he mean when he's talking about the idle and disorderly? Now, something I appreciate about the Bible translation that we're using, the, the, the newer version of the NIV, it translates one word, uh, a tacos, like think of tacos, a tacos, um, that's your Greek for the day. A tacos. You're going to remember it, too, which is the great thing. One word they translate into two words, idle and disruptive. And I think this is a smart choice. You might be rolling your eyes because you're like, he's doing Greek, and I don't care. And my Greek professor said, treat Greek like your underwear and never show it in public. But, but I think this is helpful for us in understanding what this passage is actually talking about. The NIV translates it as idle and disruptive. A lot of translations just stick with idle. And here's, here's the problem with that, is that only covers 
one part of the nuance of what the Greek word is saying. And so if you're reading it in a translation and all it ever says is the idol, you're going to think it's talking about people in the congregation who are lazy. People, people in Thessalonica who were just, you know, they're sitting on their couch, they're playing Xbox, and they're not willing to, to work to make a living, right? Back when they had the Xbox One, right? <laughs> and that's what I thought my Father's Day sermon was going to be. I was going to, you know, preach to myself to not play Xbox so much and be a hands-on dad. But it's more than that. That that might be one nuance of what we're talking about today. But the the way that atakos is translated in NIV, and what's helpful for it is the word is more than just lazy, but it means to have a disordered life. It means to be meddlesome. It's actually a military term where... uh, Uh, ancient Greek writers talking about militaries where the army was undisciplined or talking about soldiers who were insubordinate, like they would would use the word atakos. And and a a good modern phrase that we might look at is the the phrase out of line. You're you're being out of line. You're you're out of line right now. That you're, you're not following suit in what you should be but in your own way, you're stepping out, trying to do your own thing. In the context of the military term, I, I can imagine like how frustrating and difficult it would be if the people who were supposed to have your back at the heat of battle were those who were atacos, who were unsubordinate, who were undisciplined, who you actually didn't know if you could rely upon. And they're actually uh, acting more as a, a leech and meddlesome and disruptive rather than helping and supporting and carrying on with the mission. They're out of line. So in this case, in what we're reading in 2 Thessalonians, yes, there's the aspect of these people weren't working for a living. They were choosing for whatever reason, not uh, not you know, because of disability or not because of lack of employment opportunity, they were choosing not to work because if I don't have to work, I don't want to work. Like, there's generous people around and they'll feed me. Like, I could just pull up to Marlene's house and she'll give me food to eat. Instead of saying, I'm, I'm going to take charge of my life and I'm going, to, I'm going to do what I need to do to provide for myself or for my family... They weren't supporting themselves. They were being dependent on others. They were meddling in everyone's business. I love how the NIV translates. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Like they care more about what's going on at Tim Hortons and the gossip that's going around in town than, than actually contributing. They're being more consumers than contributors. And they're purposely ignoring Paul's teaching an example. This isn't the first time that Paul has addressed this. Remember, this is 2 Thessalonians, right? There was a letter that came before it, 1 Thessalonians. And Paul speaks to this twice in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Let me point you, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. He's writing to the church and says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. 
You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And then he carries on a chapter later in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, atakos, encourage and uh, the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, and make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So the people that Paul is talking about in this letter, the ones he's calling out, the atakos, these are those who are continuing to dismiss the teaching of the apostle. They're saying, I don't care what Paul says. I'm just going to do my own thing. They're harming the witness of the church to outsiders by being those who are moochers, who, who may be out of no need, but they, they just choose to. I, I'm just going to, to mooch off others and maybe beg on the street for food, even though I have skills and I could work with my hands. Giving more reason for the outside world in Thessalonica to persecute the church. Do you remember the last couple weeks, part of this letter is the Christians in Thessalonica, they're being persecuted both by the Greeks and by the Jews in their city. The last thing they need is people within the community to be going around living life in a way that's causing more scorn and causing the community around them to look down on them even more because apparently these Christians aren't even willing to put in a day's work in order to feed their families. It was harming the witness of the church to outsiders. And it was taking advantage of the generosity of the church. There were those, no doubt, within the community who took the burden upon themselves to feed and to care for the atakos in the community who weren't willing to work for themselves. And all of a sudden, these people in the community become a burden. Not because they need to be, but because uh, I don't need to follow the, the, the teaching of the apostles. I don't need to work because there's other people around who they're going to look after me. So I don't need to worry about that. But to Paul, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Not just because he has some like political ideology about the importance of employment. Not because he like hates the welfare state. But because he sees this as damaging the reputation of the church's witness in their town. Because he sees it as, a, as a, an act of defiance towards the teaching of the apostles to the churches. And because they're taking advantage of people who want to be generous and charitable in the church, and all of a sudden they're spending their resources caring for Johnny who's not willing to work instead of the actual poor who need the support. And so Papa Bear Paul steps in. And he uses some strong words. He's not hiding the weight behind what's going on. I have several references throughout this chapter of him using like this strong commanding language. We trust you are doing and will continue the things we command. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters. You yourselves know you ought to follow our example. Such people we command and we urge in the Lord Jesus Christ 
in, in 3.14, anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Like, he's not pulling any punches. He's saying, like, the words I'm saying to you are important and authoritative, and you should be listening to them. Paul knows there is authority in his voice as an apostle. He's not writing or teaching like about his pet subjects, the like things that that you know. We all have those things if we spend too much time on YouTube looking up this one thing, and that's all we ever talk about to people. But Paul is he's speaking with authority to the church, not out of some some pet issue, but with the voice of an apostle, an authoritative voice. And the 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 teaching of the apostles was significant in the early church. The apostles' teaching carried a weight that was was more than just like the the local pastor. Because the apostles' teaching was a continuation of the teaching of Jesus. Like, they were the ones who were with Jesus and encountered Jesus and were entrusted with passing his teaching to the early church. And so what Paul said mattered. And so to say flippantly, I don't care what Paul says. I'm going to do my own thing to say, I'm just like, I'm going to step out and do my own thing. To be out of line is to be in contradiction to the teaching of the apostles. We see the teaching of the apostles important both to the early church as it is today. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. We have an example of this. This is after the the events of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and they're speaking in languages and people from all across the known world at the time get to hear the glory of of God proclaimed about Jesus in their own language and then the church erupts. There's like 3,000 people added to the church and this passage describes what the church looked like. And the first thing that it says is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and prayer. The teaching of Paul and of the, the disciples of Jesus who were passing down the teachings of Jesus that they encountered with him, writing them down and sending them authoritatively to the churches around them was significant. It was a great authority in their lives and ought to be an authority in the lives of us who claim Jesus as our King today. So the question for us is who is our authority? Dads, what authority are you submitting to? Too many of us men want to be the ultimate authority in our lives. Like, no one's going to tell me what to do. If I want to step out and do my own thing, no one can really tell me that, that I'm at a line. I want to do my thing. In my life, maybe in my family's life, like I feel like, oh, I'm the authority in my home, and so my family better listen to me, but who am I submitting to? We strive for authority in all kinds of avenues of life whether that's sizing ourselves up to our peers, whether that is at work trying to to get ahead and have that edge of of, uh, authority over our coworkers. We want to get to do what we want. I get to believe whatever I want. 
Before we know it, we are a tacos. We're out of line. Where we're not willing to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. The question is for us as followers of Jesus, are we willing to say that Jesus and His teachings are authority over our lives? And how do we do that? What what does that look like for us to say, okay, Jesus and His teachings and the teachings of the Apostle are authoritative in my life? Well, first of all, it means that that I'm actually going to to learn what the teachings of Jesus and, and His Apostles are. It means I'm going to get to know the Bible. I'm going to spend time in the Word and and try to work out in community, do the good hard work of understanding an ancient document to understand what what is the authoritative Word of God in my life. It means things like what we're doing right now of, of working through the text of Scripture and, and work through what that looks like for us as followers of Jesus to live our lives under the authority of the Holy Spirit-inspired writings of the New Testament. It means submitting to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, so, some of us are really comfortable with the Scripture side of things. Like, I'm willing to submit to Scripture and not so comfortable with submitting to the Holy Spirit. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And He's committed to the lifelong work of shaping you into the image of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is going to convict you when you're out of line. He will be that in your life. The question is, is, is will we listen? Are we willing to say that the Spirit has authority over my To be a disciple, an apprentice maybe in in the more modern language, means that we're seeking to have our lives shaped not by our own desires and preferences, but by Jesus. And so if that means that Jesus is speaking something that that contradicts this is what I want to do, then I'm going to say, okay, he is my king and my authority and and I don't want to be at a line. Maybe you struggle with authority. I was listening uh, last night in deep sermon preparation to John Mellencamp's uh, authority song. I fight authority, authority always wins. What a great tune. <laughs> That's right. Maybe you struggle with authority. And, and maybe... maybe Part of that is because you have seen people in positions of authority or institutions who have abused that authority for their own means, who have used position and stature and power in order to take advantage of people. And like the church has done that throughout the centuries, I don't want to say like really well in a good way, like the church has abused authority in the past and in the present. Here's the thing, though. The authority of Jesus is different than the way that authority is often wielded in our world. The authority of Jesus isn't a angry submission, submit to me because you need to do what I want. The authority of Jesus is an authority without entitlement. 
It's in a Savior who created the world, who is willing to come down, put on human flesh, walk among us to suffer for us, to rise from the grave, who sits in the, the, the throne of authority over the cosmos and invites us into the life that he has for us. It is not a self-seeking authority. It is a for-the-good-of-creation authority. And Paul, as flawed of a man as he is, he's, he's following suit in Jesus' kind of authority as well. When, when he is, is pronouncing his authority as an apostle in this letter, when he's saying, listen, we did this so you would imitate us, he says, listen, we had every right for you guys to cook us dinner every night, you know, for you to wine and dine us while we were in Thessalonica because we're the apostles. Like, we have a level of authority, but he says, we didn't feel entitled to that. In fact, we worked with our hands while we were there. None of you paid a dime to take us out to Sims and to make sure the apostles felt welcome in Thessalonica. We, we paid our own way. One of the, I, I love some of the, the pictures that we're using, borrowing from the Bible Project for this series. They have this picture of, this is supposed to be Paul, working as a tent maker. Just doing his work as, uh, as the apostle. And, and to think of this man who was hardworking, who wasn't trying to take advantage of other people because of his position of power but who is willing to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Knowing that his words bore weight. Listen, when we talk about Jesus' authority, authority is not a dirty word when the one holding the authority is worthy. And Jesus is worthy. He's the one worthy of, of being on the throne. Man, you, you read in Revelation 4 and 5 and the, the whole like, who is worthy to open the, the, to break the seals and to open the scroll? The only one found was the Lamb who was slain. The passage gives me chills because I think of our longing for power and longing for authority and everyone wanting to be the kind of like strong man who has control. But the only one who truly has the right to authority is the one who gave his life and was raised. The lamb that was slain. In a culture where we're very much enabled to pursue whatever we want outside of any kind of authority, Paul reminds us in this passage that part of following Christ as our authority means we need community. We need people around us. It's, it's one of the, the reasons of the importance of, of Sunday mornings, what we're doing. Like, to gather together, we are helping one another be reminded of, of Christ as our King and our authority. As we sing these songs about Him, we rem, we're reminded of, of how great our God is and His deep love for us and His worthiness to be the one who sits on the throne. We need that reminder. We need the community to, to help shape one another. We need those friendships where we can help encourage each other when, when we're starting to maybe go our own way and we have friends who can kind of encourage us back to, to put our eyes on Jesus. 
both in the kind of loving pat on the back, remember Jesus, but also, as we see in Paul's chapter here, also sometimes in some, some tough love situations. Paul is, is writing to this church that has allowed these atacos to take advantage of them for who knows how long, at least two letters of Paul long, however far apart those were written. And Paul's saying, listen, we need to draw the line somewhere. And if these people are continually to defame the gospel and take advantage of the community, we need to stop enabling them. And we need to draw the line somewhere. And so he, he uses the strong language of, listen, we need to not associate with these people if they're going to, to refuse the warning from the apostle the community needs to step in and take their role as well. That makes us really uncomfortable. Because the idea of, of, of sending people out of the community, it sounds heartbreaking. And, and in many ways, seems contrary to the, the accepting, loving, anyone's welcome nature of the gospel. We need to remember this is a situation So we need to be careful to not just broadly apply this to every situation that takes place. Paul and the church knew the situation. They knew the depth of severity of it. And the fact that he is saying that this is a potential course of action should show us the severity of whatever it was that was going on. It's more than just like, buddy's spending too much time on the couch. There's something severe going on. But even in that, even in his teaching of you might need to disassociate from some individuals taking advantage of the community, he says, speak to them as you would a fellow believer, not an enemy. Their story's not done yet. So even for us, when we're out of line, even when we need that kind of strong word of authority to remind us like who actually is in charge, our story's not done. It doesn't end with the, the slap on the wrist or the, the, the word of warning. As we've been singing all morning, we have a God who is pursuing us. We have a God who's not like giving up on us. We have a God who, like we read, like leaves the 99 to go chase the one. And so maybe we're kind of like wandering off or we're wanting to go our own way, but we have a God who's committed to chasing after us, even in the midst of that. And in Paul's uh, strong words here of not associating them in order that they may feel ashamed is meant to be something that brings the atakos to repentance, that they might find the love and grace of God. It's not a we're kicking you out, you're off the team. It is a, in this moment, God is doing the good work of pursuing you. How will you respond? Listen, instead of dismissing these firm warnings as it would be really easy for me to do, like, that verse, we'll, we'll just skip that verse this morning. And instead of dismissing it as, oh, these are just, you know, 
the, the words of Paul who got up on the wrong side of the bed that day. When we read these stark, firm warnings in Scripture, rather than brushing them off, I think an important thing for us is to, to always ask the question and do the heart reflection of, is it I, Lord? Like the disciples at the Last Supper when Jesus said, one of you will betray me sitting around this table. The disciples say, is it I, Lord? Knowing that each of us has the capacity to step out of line, to be the betrayer. And so rather than getting kind of our, our uh, good Pharisee robe on and say, oh, that's not me. I'm not one of the Atacos. I'm, I'm right in line with Jesus. We need to remember that, listen, there but by the grace of God go I. And he's continuing to pursue me. Let's wrap up with Paul's final words. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. I can imagine them like reading this after realizing we may need to kick some people out. <laughs> like, may the Lord of peace be with you in all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Now, Paul's probably having a scribe write most of this letter, and he kind of signs this last part in his own hand. Uh, Galatians has this part as well in it. And this is important for him because, remember as we read last week, there were people writing letters to the church in Thessalonica saying they were Paul, telling them all kinds of things about the end of the world that was getting them up in arms. Paul's reminding them here, this is a word from me. These are the words of the apostle. These are the words of the one who worked among you to show you Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. You are the one worthy of being king. And God, I know my own tendency and temptation to want to, to go my own way and take things in my own hands. But Jesus, would, would you invite me back in line? <laughs> God, may my heart always be in a place where I will respond to your grace of welcoming me back. Help us to grasp the, the beauty of, of you as the one who holds all authority, being one who's not using it for selfish gain, but using it for the truest good, the redemption of your creation. May we find our joy and our peace in you. It's your name we pray.